You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Good morning and a warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk. It's Fed Day once again, Thursday, the 28th of March. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business and finance headlines. The Federal Reserve has raised rates by a quarter of a percent, but indicated that hikes are nearing an end. It was the ninth increase since March 2022, during which time rates have risen by 475 basis points. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told the U.S. Senate Appropriations Subcommittee yesterday that the U.S. was not currently working on blanket insurance for bank deposits. That sent shares of regional banks plunging on Wall Street. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority reassured investors yesterday that subordinated debt holders have priority over shareholders when banks are being wound up. The move follows similar reassurances made by regulators in the EU, UK and Canada after the takeover of Credit Suisse wiped out the holders of its additional Tier 1 bonds while preserving $3.25 billion in value for equity investors. And Tencent has reversed two successive quarters of revenue decline and said it was well positioned to benefit from the ending of the country's zero Covid policy. The Chinese tech giant posted quarterly revenues of about 20.8 billion US dollars in the three months to December. That's a 1% increase from the same period last year and in line with analysts' forecasts. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Vandana Hari, founder of Vanda Insights. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On Wall Street Wednesday, the three major indices tumbled during Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell's press conference and closed almost at the lows of the session. The S&P 500 dropped 1.7% to end at 3,937. The Dow fell 531 points, or 1.6%, closing at 32,030. At one point during the session, the Dow was up over 200 points before turning lower. The Nasdaq, that declined 1.6% and closed at 11,670. Regional bank shares led the declines. The KBW Regional Banking Index fell 5.3%. Shares of PacWest plunged over 17%. And shares of First Republic Bank closed almost 16% lower and are down almost 90% since the start of the month. There were reports yesterday that it may receive some form of government support. Adding to the declines were comments from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who told the US Senate that the government was not currently working on blanket insurance for bank deposits. Hong Kong stocks posted big gains. The Hang Seng Index surged 333 points, that's 1.7%, to end at 19,591. The Hang Seng Finance Index was up 1.7%. The Tech Index, that jumped 1.1% higher. And at the open this morning, futures markets are pointed to a gain of just 7 points for the Hang Seng, which is expected to start the day at 19,598. U.S. government bond prices rallied on Wednesday after the Fed signalled it was close to the end of its cycle of interest rate increases. The yield on the two-year Treasury note, which is the most sensitive to short-term interest rate changes, dropped 22 basis points to 3.96%. It's the 10th session in a row now that two-year yields have moved more than 20 basis points in a single day, and it's the highest level of bond market volatility on record outside of the 2008 financial crisis. And elsewhere in the markets, the US dollar dropped to a six-week low and Brent crude oil settled 1.8% higher. And you can get more details on the latest market movements on my daily blog at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. 
Let's go and join our guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us is Vandana Harari, who is founder of Vandu Insights down in Singapore this morning. Morning to you, Vanda. Good morning, Peter. Well, let's start with the uh, with the Fed. I suppose there were five main things that came out of that. So let's get your thoughts on each of them. First of all, uh, the FOMC voted unanimously to raise the benchmark rate by 25 basis points as forecast to a target range of four and three quarter percent to five percent. That's the second straight hike of that size following December's 50 basis point hike. And then we had four straight 75 basis point moves before that. Andrew, are, are we coming to the end of this now? Is that is that your sense or, or do you think the Fed is making a mistake? Well, I'm not quite sure whether I'm qualified enough to find to tell that uh, the Fed is or is not making a mistake. However, I'm qualified enough to look at the statistics. And that is inflation right now is about 6%. I'm talking about the CPI, not the PSC. And it's sort of coming down. Fed funds are at 5%, which means they are negative 1%. And the two years are 4%, which means they're negative 2%. So strictly speaking, if I was the man from Mars and I was looking at the looser monetary policy, key interest rates in the United States are still negative in real terms. Okay. So uh, if I was to take a deep breath and I would say we are not going to be there until interest rates are positive, then I would say the Fed will need to continue to increase whilst inflation is coming till the two things cross, okay, till uh, the inflation rate is roughly equal to the Fed funds rate. But that's a very crude way of looking at it because mm-hmm. that's looking backwards. The whole point is to say if we're going forward. But yes, I think the Fed will continue to, to, to hike. They will let uh, this uh, uncertain period go over, and most definitely they will hike once more. Fed, what do you think? I mean, we're, we're still a long way from the Fed's inflation target of 2%, aren't we? And, and it's going to take quite a lot to get there. So is the Fed making a mistake by sort of backing off now from further rate increases? Again, I'm not really qualified to talk about whether the Fed is making a mistake or making the right decisions. What I can tell you is how the oil market uh, perceives uh, the financial markets and very, very sensitive right now to the sentiment in the overall financial markets, which in turn, of course, has been driven by the banking crisis uh, more recently. But in general, since the start of this week, uh, has been led by the market's expectations of the Fed and the, what the Fed has actually been doing. As far as the oil markets are concerned, um, a 25 basis point uh, increase last night had been baked in. So not surprisingly, uh, we've seen uh, a reaction of a bit of a relief, a continuing relief in the oil markets. Uh, broadly, uh, first it was from uh, an easing of uh, fears over the banking crisis and now over the the Fed decision coming pretty much in line with expectations as far as the oil markets are concerned. You have to bear in mind that, uh, you know, in the oil markets, you keep an eye on the, of course, global oil supply and demand fundamentals as well as the financial markets. And uh, oil market stakeholders aren't really... Uh, geared to uh, pay very close attention to understand all the dynamics of uh, you know either the banking crisis or what the Fed is doing. So they are basically we've seen oil prices uh, moving up and down pretty much in tune with the risk appetite in the broader uh, financial markets. So you know a lot of 
extra dots that need to be connected, especially for the oil markets when it comes to what's going on in the financial world. And last week, we saw Brent crude oil. It lost, what, about $10, didn't it, over the week? Is, is that in line with fundamentals or is that more a panic reaction to the banking crisis? I think it was pretty much a, a panicky sell-off. Uh, as we saw, just the risk appetite uh, evaporate pretty quickly. It was uh, an overreaction. I, I personally feel uh, the nearly 12% drop that we saw in, in Brent prices and last Friday uh, prices ended at 15-month lows. Uh, I think they were definitely in oversold territory. However, uh, we have seen the recovery since Monday uh, very gradual, very cautious. I expect that will remain the case. Um, ultimately, crude has to realign a little bit uh, to the fundamentals. In terms of fundamentals, nothing has changed uh, through the, the past uh, fortnight, I would say. Uh, there was uh, what last week did was the banking crisis triggered uh, extreme um, sort of reaction assuming that perhaps we were going into a broader financial crisis and perhaps even recession. Now, if that doesn't play out, uh, I think crude has to recover. Brent probably could clamber back uh, over $80 uh, levels. And mind you, we're we're sitting uh, at least $5 to $6 below that uh, as we speak. Andrew, let's get back to what the, the Fed's actually done. It's famous dot plots. Um, of forecasts of, of Fed members. It, it's showing now um, a, a terminal rate of about 5.1% at the end of this year, and then uh, interest rates falling uh, next year to about uh, 4.1%. 4, 4. Do, do you think that's reasonable? I mean, we, be, if you go back maybe a couple of weeks ago, the markets thought that rates were going to get close to 6%, about 5.75%. Well, that, that uh, you know, the market expectations would have made some kind of sense if one believes what the Fed tells you. I have no reason to disbelieve that the Fed would like a target uh, inflation of, uh, of 2%. And therefore, whilst this is anywhere near, then uh, simply leaving interest rates at about uh, whatever you call it, X percent, 5% or 6%, uh, it, it just doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't rhyme. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I, like, I like to give uh, musical, uh, I'm, a, I'm a very keen uh, music lover, particularly classical music, and I like to think that in finance you will be able to have the equivalent of somebody going in music, tan ta ra tan tan No, I don't hear that tan-tan in fact. Okay, it goes tan ta ra it goes tan ta ra dong And I say, well, hang on a minute, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. So, you know, and I'm, I'm not being at all uh, flippant here. You know, I hear what you say, Fed. I don't dispute it. I assume that inflation will come down, da, 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 da. And then what are you going to do with interest rates? And the answer is, is well, you know, we'll put the dots and they're going to, to, to sort of, you know, rise and no more than 5%. Well, you know, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Unless there is a very strong statement of inflation, which unless I've missed it, they haven't made it. Do, do you think the Fed is spooked by what's going on in the financial markets? I mean, it's, it's, it's trying to give a picture of everything is well, no need to worry, the system's fine, it's, it's all stable. But do you think behind the scenes um, that they must have taken that into account uh, you know, in this decision? I liked, yeah, I liked what Yellen said, that look, we're not going to, to, to insure everybody. Uh, Peter, these are facts, okay? I'm not going to offer you one opinion. Okay, SVB 
went down, belly up, because the assets didn't match the liabilities. Plain vanilla banking crisis. Mm. Okay, all right. And uh, they sort of rescued it and uh, uh, they, they increased uh, unnecessarily the insurance to take care of it. All right, so that goes out of the picture. Okay, uh, the First Republic, 75% plus of all their deposits were uninsured, uninsured. Mm -hmm. Okay, and of course, when these people see what is happening and there is no guarantee that their deposits will be insured, they leave the bank. So what was the issue here? Nothing to do with the poor bank. It was mm -hmm. all to do with depositors. Hello, mm -hmm. depositors, not the bank. The depositors left, not the bank. And then, of course, we have... Uh, Oh, God. Credit Suisse, which is simply, a, a, you know, a version of a banking situation out of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I mean, name it, they ticked all their own boxes for the last 10 years. Again, nothing to do with assets and liabilities. So the Fed sits down and says, hang on a minute, why are these guys failing? SPB mm -hmm. is a small bank, 200 million. Okay, to have tiny in relationship to, to American banking in inverted commas system. So, 200 billion. So, let, let, them, let them out of the way. Swiss bank, what is there to be taught from them? Okay, it's, it is clearly badly, badly managed. And as for the First Republic, blame the depositors, don't blame the bank. Andrew, Andrew, who's who's paying for all of this? They, 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 the authorities, the regulators are going to great lengths to not use the word bailout to try and emphasise taxpayers are not on the hook. But that isn't true, is it? I mean, someone Absolutely. somewhere has to be on the hook. This is a grotesque lie. Okay, meaning that if the government, as it did, for example, in the case of Credit Suisse, Credit Suisse, saying here is nine billion French. Uh, so the Swiss francs, in case uh, Mr. Uh, UBS, you make a mistake in assessing the risk, we will top it up, we will pay it out after 9 billion, that's a, that's a taxpayer. Also, it has to be, this gets incredibly boring, Peter, so I'll jump very quickly. Whenever the central bank takes action, okay, something happens to its assets and its liabilities, overwhelmingly the assets of all central bank, bus bar possibly the Bank of Japan, consists of government bonds. Mm. Okay, consists of government bonds. So as the, the uh, let's say, the financial assets and the financial liabilities of central banks vary because of rescue situation, invariably, invariably, the balance sheet increases. And that means mm. invariably they're holding more government bonds. And guess what? Who backs the government bonds? The yeah, he so, has to pay the interest, yeah. doesn't he? The, the increased interest yeah. comes from the taxpayer. Absolutely. I have yet to see, Peter, a CEO, okay, really being taken to cleaners, uh, his uh, Lamborghini and his villas being sold off because he really mismanaged the bank. Mm. doesn't happen. Okay, there is a colossal moral hazard. Nothing happens to the people that made the decision unless the decision was fairly criminal. If the decision was simply a matter of undue diligence, correction, not due diligence, take them to court and you're going to sue them till year-end without mm. any uh, obvious decision, because it's very difficult to prove negligence. Incredibly but, difficult. Vanda, there seems to be an inverse correlation. Well, the is, it, it's, it, is the, it is the shareholders. Sorry, it is the taxpayers of the world, and of course the shareholders, mm. not in the case of uh, Swiss Bank.
Okay. Van Vander, there seems to be an inverse correlation between commodities in general at the moment and, and the state of, uh, of, of US banks and the banking crisis. When it starts to look worse, uh, commodity prices plunge. I presume that's because they're worried or um, traders in those markets are worried that um, if the banking crisis spreads, it has an impact on businesses, on consumers, uh, credit conditions tighten. Is, is that the relationship? Yes, uh, absolutely. So any uh, a fallout that one sees uh, in the broader markets from uh, inflation, from the Fed continuing to tighten or being more hawkish than market expectations and uh, the banking crisis, which uh, came from the left field. And uh, I would think perhaps there could be more shocks uh, in the future. All of these are basically going to add to a general sense of nervousness that uh, oil demand growth, and mind you, uh, global oil demand has still not recovered to the pre-COVID 2019 levels. Uh, it is expected to do so uh, in 2023, but that's where uh, the, uh, the uncertainty lies. So any, any crisis or any fears that uh, exacerbate expectations that the global economy will perhaps not do as well uh, this year as has been expected. Uh, basically, then, uh, you know, the oil market connects the dots to lesser demand for oil, uh, not, uh, not as strong a growth. Uh, year on year as, as expected, uh, which means that, uh, you know, which is a, a negative for prices. It's, uh, you know, that's the, the straightforward connection that is being drawn. Of course, uh, the problem still remains that for the oil market, as I said earlier, just connecting that long line of dots between uh, things that are happening in the financial markets and what it actually translates to in terms of demand. Uh, is a is a you know long winding road, and mm. it's not always that the market gets it right. <laughs> if there wasn't a financial crisis or a banking crisis at the moment, would oil be considerably higher by now? I would expect still uh, for prices to be uh, perhaps uh, in uh, you know just above eighty eighty to mid eighties range for for Brent, um, and the reason it wouldn't be any higher is that, uh, you know, the Chinese oil demand rebound has not quite uh, materialized as expected. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, you have OPEC, which is, uh, you know, sitting as a balancing agent. Uh, you know, it would uh, reduce uh, output further if it thought uh, prices were to go lower and, of course, put more oil into the market because I don't think OPEC plus wants to do anything uh, that would uh, send prices back to levels that we saw last year because then that could endanger uh, global economic uh, recovery or global economy even further. So, uh, you know, OPEC is there as a balancing agent and would probably try to maintain prices around, I would say, you know, 75 to 85 sort of range. Andrew, we're, the, the Fed's in a strange situation at the moment, isn't it? Not for the first time, um, but it's raising interest rates. It's shrinking its balance sheet through uh, this process known as quantitative tightening. And now, at the same time, it's, it's injected up to $300 billion of liquidity through its emergency loan facilities into the financial markets, which in effect, doesn't that sort of rather negate everything else it's doing? Because that's quite inflationary, isn't it? So at the same time, it's trying to shrink its balance sheet, but then it's just injecting um, money in through, other, through other means. It, it can't carry on doing yeah. all those three things at the same time, can it? Actually, I'm, uh, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool non-monetarist, so 
I really don't believe that even if the Fed increases its balance sheet and therefore increases a particular definition of money stock, that is in any way directly correlated with increases in prices. Okay, so I will not call it inflationary in the sense that it will increase the price of bread and shoes. But, you know, Peter, inflation has lost all its meaning mm. because, you know, at the time the Fed said we really want, sorry, for example, sorry, I'll try that again. Bank of Japan wanted to see much higher inflation. And, of course, they had much higher inflation because they had negative real yields in government bonds. Now, it was the price of government bonds being increased. Ah, but that was not inflation they were interested. Mm. So the Fed expanding its balance sheet may very well impact the prices of financial assets. And the price of financial assets are never form part of the CPI index. So I will not call that inflationary. Now, will it affect the prices of bread and shoes? Absolutely not. Or it will affect them in a very roundabout and mild way. As I said, I don't, I am not a monetarist. God bless poor Milton Friedman, he's dead for a long time. Okay, but, uh, well, okay. But the, the Fed and policymakers have been mismanaging this ever since the global financial crisis, haven't they? When they cut rates down to zero, and probably shouldn't have done. Um, and, and now they've got nothing left to do. They, if there's another crisis, if this crisis escalates, they can't cut rates down to yeah. zero again, can they? And, and now they're in the position well, where the, the Fed now, used to give money to the Treasury. Now it's the Treasury giving money to the Fed. God, how can I disagree with the guy that invited him to his home for me to talk? Well, I'm sorry. There you go, Peter. I disagree with you because I perceive the present crisis uh, absolutely very important, but absolutely not a crisis because I keep repeating. Why did Credit Suisse went down? Because it was badly managed. Nothing mm. to do with its balance of uh, balance sheet. Nothing to do with it. Okay, this is, I, I carry on repeating it, nothing to do with its balance sheet. So how can it be a financial crisis? It is, because of course that it immediately created a, a knock-on effect, except that people say, but, all right, uh, if they go down, they owe money to us, they are not going to pay, and that continues the knock-off domino effect. But it was not fundamentally a financial crisis. The same thing with... Uh, with the uh, first, uh, first Republic, except poor little SVB, which was a financial crisis, but it was a very small bank. Literally, it, mm. was, it was too small to matter, not too big to fail. It was too small to matter. So should the, should, the, or should the Swiss authorities have just kept out of the way and Credit Suisse yeah, would have found a solution? Well, you know, it may, probably absolutely. would have been taken absolutely. over, but it didn't need the um, government to um, intervene and push UBS and, Swiss, and Credit Suisse together. I'm a firm believer that they, you know, like raising up babies, you know, if they cry and you lift them straight away from the cradle, my mother used to say, forget it. Mm -hmm. They will be doing this till they are 85 years old. Okay, so this is exactly what is going on right now. The bank, the bank authorities are simply telling bank, don't worry. Okay, if you do something naughty, we'll pay it out. I mm -hmm. called it the Andrew Freris Lamborghini insurance lima i can i can drive my uninsured lamborghini against a brick wall knowing fully well that somebody else is going to pay for the lamborghini and is also going to pay it's also going to pay the damage to the wall yeah of course i'll do it why not it's great fun what a good what a good an analogy, um, Andrew. Vanda, let me finish with a, a question about the dollar and commodities again. One of the things we're seeing here 
is that all of this is weakening the dollar, isn't it? Particularly um, all the money that the Fed is injecting um, into the markets. And that presumably, again, we have an inverse relationship, don't we, with things like gold. So this is going to benefit commodities like gold. Yeah, so as a, as a rule of thumb, um, commodities being priced in U.S. dollars are inversely correlated. Um, I would say a, a slight difference, though, between gold uh, and how gold and oil have behaved uh, in uh, response to the volatility in the U.S. dollar. Um, so uh, oil, uh, more often than not, just simply inversely correlated uh, to the dollar strength. But uh, gold, um, and this has been, uh, you know, particularly uh, clear in the uh, recent banking crisis, um, has uh, gained as a safe haven asset, uh, obviously, which oil is not. So uh, we saw oil and gold uh, go in completely different directions uh, last week. And, um, you know, again, as I said, going for, I just have this gut feeling that, you know, the, uh, unfortunately, the banking crisis may not be the last shock that we have seen this year. Uh, so, again, I would expect gold perhaps to be far more volatile uh, as a safe haven um, than oil. Um, I think oil will just very broadly continue to follow the risk appetite in, in the financial markets. Okay, well, thank you both very much there. You heard Vandana Hari, the founder of Vander Insights. Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I presume, Andrew, you're now driving home in your Lamborghini. Absolutely crashed, but never mind. Somebody else is paying for it. So, <laughs> thank you both very much indeed. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk, and I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. I should just say that Ross is over in Taipei. So let's get your thoughts uh, first of all, Ross, on President Xi's three-day state visit to Russia, which then ended up coinciding with Japanese Prime Minister uh, Fumio Kishida's visit uh, to Ukraine. So it it was sort of a little bit upstaged, wasn't it, by that? And I'm wondering about the the optics. There we had um, President Xi meeting with a guy who's been accused of war crimes. He's currently facing um, uh, arrest under uh, under warrants from the International Criminal Court. And then at the same time, the Japanese Prime Minister uh, visiting the graves of civilians who have been hit by Russian missiles. It, it was all rather interesting, wasn't it? Uh, certainly. Uh, though for, for the Xi-Putin summit, I think most of what we uh, have, have read in the public uh, statements that they made, it was within expectation. So focus on the relationship, uh, talk about ever more trade uh, between the two sides and criticism of the United States and the West. And then also a strong statement of support from Russia on on China's position with regard to Taiwan. Uh, In a way, even if the war in Ukraine was not uh, occurring, uh, this is probably what one would expect from a a Xi-Putin meeting, even in peacetime. Uh, So no no surprise. The surprise part, as you mentioned, was that after visiting India, uh, Prime Minister Kishida showed up uh, in Ukraine, the, the last G7 leader to, to make that trip and uh, being the chair, uh, rotating chair this year of the G7. It was kind of something that he had to do eventually. And uh, whether or not it was chosen to 
kind of steal some of the news from the, the C Putin summit. I, I, I guess what we can only speculate on that. I also have to keep in mind that he did come from a short visit from India, and uh, you know that that alone uh, would upset China because uh, you know they're going to say that it's all part of. Uh, the Quad or Western countries uh, conspiring against China. And, and obviously, China's not a fan of any kind of greater India-Japan military cooperation. So uh, I, I'm sure uh, China uh, will continue to criticize Japan's foreign policy and the increase uh, in defense spending that was announced at the end of last year. Uh, uh, again, whether all this was coincidental or a Japanese attempt to uh, steal some of the press coverage from from uh, Xi, we could just speculate on that. One of the questions that people were wondering before President Xi's trip was whether he would publicly push President Putin to try and seek some sort of peace negotiation in Ukraine. But he didn't in any way at all, did he? There was just no sign, certainly in public, um, of that happening and very much uh, President Xi indicating that he supported uh, Russia's position. Was that a surprise or a disappointment? It's generally it's consistent with China's approach uh, ever since Russia invaded Ukraine. So, uh, and also I, I think that that's consistent with China's approach to many uh, you know, armed conflicts worldwide. Uh, taking sides is just relatively rare in those situations. You know, we've come to expect more kind of bland statements about uh, uh, peace and uh, uh, territorial integrity, et cetera, et cetera, from China. And uh, look how, how long it took China to produce their uh, so-called position, or you know, some people call it a peace plan, but you know, or a roadmap. Uh, but then you're you're right. You know, once she was was there, at least publicly, he wasn't wasn't really saying follow my roadmap or follow China's roadmap. Uh, he was very very cons- conservative uh, in 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 referring to that or referring to any kind of ceasefire. It was certainly behind closed doors that they would have discussed how to get from where we are today and to, to actually a, a ceasefire and what China might be able to do. And I, I think uh, in this regard, an important aspect of this will be to see what happens in the interactions between Ukraine and China directly and what, when uh, Zelensky and Xi speak, if and when they do, or maybe they already have, uh, uh, and then what kind of follow-up. I mean, are we going to see Chinese government officials going to Ukraine and, and, and actually start to uh, – act in a role of a middleman and try to be a peace broker. And that just hasn't happened yet. What does President Xi hope to gain in return for helping Russia? Because he has really embraced Russia, hasn't he? Really embraced President Putin at the expense, particularly of his relationship with the EU, because it's very, very difficult for um, relations with Europe to to, to really repair um, while China is really seems to be so on side with, uh, with Russia. So what does it hope to get in return for all of this? Well, on the monetary or the trade side, uh, we all know that access to uh, low cost or or, uh, uh, commodities, energy, uh, that's certainly a priority for China. It will continue uh, to be so. And uh, if you could get it from a neighbor on on good terms, and if they're going to trade in your settling yuan, uh, even better. 
that's an important aspect of all of this. And then being on on kind of the opposite side of the Western U.S.-led approach to these issues, I think also fulfills China's strategic goals rather than saying, yeah, we're, we're all on board with what the U.S. and the West are doing. I mean, of course, that, that would be a bit odd for China to take that view. Uh, there's other aspects such as uh, potential investment or more investment or greater access to the Russian Far East or points even further north, which which actually uh, wasn't really discussed much, uh, although there had been some speculation about about the Arctic being part of the discussions uh, during this summit. Uh, so it, it's a number of business and trade and just uh, strategic issues and frankly, just poking the West in the eye. Um, President Putin wants this pipeline, doesn't he, from Russia uh, going through Mongolia to China to sort of redirect gas, gas supplies really from Europe o- over to, to Asia. But President Xi, even on that, he was fairly non-committal about it, wasn't he? He didn't commit at all uh, to that pi- pipeline, only that they would look into it. Yeah, I, I guess these things have their limits. Uh, you know, but both sides still have to respond to domestic constituencies. Uh, you know, for example, in the Russian Far East issues, uh, over the last, say, 10, 20 years, there has been some blowback in Russia about Chinese companies or Chinese labor or Chinese access to, to resources in, in that part of Russia. Although it's sparsely populated, uh, it's still Russia. And, and when a lot of Chinese companies or labor show up, there there is a backlash. And I think on the Chinese side, you know, anything that would uh, come across as, as cash going from from uh, China to Russia uh, in, in terms of actual investment in, in a pipeline at this time might may, maybe have just may have been just a bit too uh, sensitive for Xi to make that commitment. In, in this economic relationship, is it the case now that really President Putin is very much the weaker partner? He's, you know, he's quite damaged, isn't he? And, and it's really China who are calling the shots. Do you see it that way? Yeah, that's a fair assessment. Uh, China makes stuff that Russia doesn't make, so Russia needs to import, and Russia can only import its resource. Uh, sorry, export its resources, and it's got some big customers in India and China, and uh, it would be in a tough position if it lost uh, China as a big customer. I, 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 there's no reason to believe that it will lose China. You know, maybe India will cave into Western pressure uh, and, and reduce its purchases. Uh, but for now, uh, China is the customer and you've got to keep the customer happy. Ross, thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, thank who you. is Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my blog at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more business and financial information as it breaks throughout the Asian trading day. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Money Talk, and I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Alicia Garcia Herrero, who is Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at Natexas. And with a view from Australia, it's Toby Lawson, Director at Staten Advice. Have a very good day. Money Talk 